From Oklahoma to Virginia, South Dakota to Vermont, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, he says the U.S. economy is running on fumes. E.J. Antoni of the Heritage Foundation is here to explain why he thinks an economic recession lies ahead. The U.S. House of Representatives has taken the first steps to both rein in spending and address the nation's debt limit crisis. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. Dr. Anthony Fauci recently did an interview with the New York Times and talked about how the government handled the COVID-19 pandemic. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine has a report. And Vladimir Putin is looking for an excuse to use nuclear weapons in his invasion of Ukraine, and he may have found it. Dr. Paul Kengor from the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College has an American Radio Journal commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. Factory orders are down, and inflation remains stubbornly high. Does all of this mean more economic rough waters lie ahead? To find out, we talk with E.J. Antoni. He is a research fellow in regional economics in the Center for Data Analysis at the Heritage Foundation. E.J., welcome back to American Radio Journal. E.J., in one of your recent policy pieces, you wrote about the fact that the United States economy is running on fumes at the moment. What did you mean by that? Well, people think that just because the consumer is still spending a lot of money, that somehow the consumer, for example, is in a healthy place. Nothing could be further from the truth. People are having to use credit cards to buy groceries, for crying out loud. So far from the consumer somehow being in a great place, the the consumer is one of those examples of the economy running on fumes. But you're seeing this not just on the consumer side, but on the business side, too. Businesses have, have been relying on a backlog of orders dating from the pandemic to keep current output levels going because new orders coming in just aren't high enough to maintain current output and current employment levels. And as those start to go away, as businesses work through their backlogs, what we're finding is that businesses are going to have to start scaling back. They're going to have to start not only uh, reducing hiring, but eventually laying off workers, and they're going to have to buy less from their suppliers and produce less. Because again, there just aren't the new orders coming in. Isn't that what the Federal Reserve is trying to accomplish here, EJ, in terms of all the interest rate hikes that we've had, significant interest rate hikes over the last nine months to a year? They want to cool the economy. Is that having an impact that's causing the situation you just outlined? To a certain extent, it is. But another part of this is the fact that the high interest rates, a lot of people think that, oh, these high interest rates are breaking things in the economy. They're not breaking anything. The low interest rates are what broke things. It's just that the high interest rates are now exposing the fraud. And so a lot of the misallocations of capital that we've seen throughout the economy and the consequences of which are being felt today, that all happened because the interest rates were too low for too long. That needs to get much more of the blame than the high interest rates today. But to to your point, though, as far as doesn't the Federal Reserve want to see this, you know, unfortunately, they are very much stuck in the old-fashioned Keynesian mindset of we need to destroy private demand in order to somehow reduce inflation. Nothing could be further from the truth. Just as they printed trillions upon trillions of dollars for the government to spend 
during COVID and, and the following years under Joe Biden, instead of taking the money from the American people to reduce inflation, how about they take it back from the government bureaucrats? That would be certainly a refreshing approach here. When you talk about high interest rates, when you look at this historically, EJ, are the interest rates currently really all that high? No, no, that's a great question. And they really are not that high, historically speaking. The problem is we're coming out of ZERP. What on earth is ZERP? Uh, it, It stands for Zero Interest Rate Policy. And essentially what we had after the housing uh, collapse and the the global financial crisis was this idea that we can somehow keep interest rates at zero essentially forever. Now, they were already too low beforehand under Alan Greenspan following the the 2001 dot-com bubble and, and crash. So interest rates were too low following that, and that's part of what helped to give us the mortgage and housing bubble. But after those events, we explicitly had this policy of essentially keeping interest rates artificially low for far too long. And a consequence of that has been that individuals and businesses have begun to change their behaviors and plan their lives around these low interest rates, whether they realize it or not. And now as you take that away, you have pulled the rug out from under this economy and exposed it for what it is, a true house of cards. Circling back, you mentioned the fact that consumers are having to put, for example, groceries on credit cards. When we look at inflation, which is cooled by maybe a percent or so, but it's been running red hot for the last year and a half, almost two years. EJ, has this actually been in effect a de facto buying power cut for the American consumer? Well, that's exactly what it is. People don't realize that inflation is a tax because it's not something that Congress votes on and the president signs, and it doesn't get a lot of attention in the media you know, when, when the actions that cause it happen. That's the Fed essentially printing money. But the fact of the matter is inflation is a tax. It's just a hidden tax. It is a way for the government to transfer wealth from you to itself. You can't come up with a better definition of a tax than that. And so as people have lost purchasing power, even though their wages have gone up, right, that's one of the things that Biden says all the time that's absolutely true. People's wages have been rising very, very fast over the last couple of years. It's just that prices have risen even faster. And so as a result of that, you know, the average family is bringing home something like an extra $200 a week in their paychecks. But Even though those paychecks have grown, they've still lost more than $100 in terms of what they're actually able to buy. And that is that that hidden tax of inflation, that transfer of wealth, that loss of purchasing power. So we have this dual situation here, EJ, of consumer buying power being eroded by inflation. And as you mentioned, we see factory orders coming down. Does all of this presage a possible economic recession here over the next a couple of quarters. Oh, absolutely. No, no, it it certainly does. Look, people keep talking about this soft landing. All right. The the Federal Reserve, by keeping rates so low for so long, they took the airplane up way above its its operational ceiling. They stalled out the engines. And now explain to me how you're somehow going to coast this big bird to the ground. It's not going to happen. We are in for a very rough landing. You cannot spend, borrow, and print trillions upon trillions of dollars, and not expect negative consequences. When did we forget that? 
looking at what's been happening or not happening in the nation's capital here over the last few days, over the last week, the fact that the nation has hit its debt limit and there are concerns as to where we might go to from here, is that going to also have a depressing effect on the economy? Not really. People think that somehow the debt ceiling and the fact that the government has to curtail its spending is somehow going to harm the economy. Exactly the opposite is the case. When the government spends money, they have to get it from somewhere. They can either get it directly from you through taxes, they can get it directly from you by selling you a government bond, or they can get it indirectly through inflation. But no matter how they do it, they're either going to decrease consumption, they're going to decrease investment, whatever the case may be. So at the end of the day, this idea that somehow the government can add to the economy is just nonsense. It's the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. It's robbing Peter to pay Paul. We will continue to keep track of all these issues with EJ and Tony. EJ is a research fellow for regional economics in the Center for Data Analysis, that of course at the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C. And EJ, tell us a bit about Heritage Foundation and where can folks go if they want to read more? They can find uh, the Heritage website, heritage.org. They can find me on Twitter, at Real EJ Antoni. The Heritage Foundation, though, our mission is essentially to formulate and promote public policies that are based on the principles of, of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and also a strong national defense. EJ Antoni of the Heritage Foundation. EJ, thank you for being back with us. Appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Uh, Late night this past week, as the U.S. House of Representatives took some significant action relative to cutting spending in the debt limit, we're going to get all the details from Scott Parkinson. Scott, good to have you here. Well, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me, Loman. So we finally have some action relative to both reining in spending, which is a Republican priority, and raising the debt limit, which apparently is somewhat of an economic necessity. Tell us what occurred. This week, the House of Representatives narrowly passed a $1.5 trillion debt limit increase. And this was a bill that it went through with 217 votes in the affirmative and 215 votes opposing the bill. The reason that it didn't receive 218 votes was there were a few Democrats that missed the vote. There were four Republicans that opposed it. And if one more had opposed it, it would not have passed. So this was a razor-thin vote in the House. And it effectively starts the real negotiation with Joe Biden and, and Senate Democrats over our national debt issues. For so long, Chuck Schumer and, and Joe Biden have been saying, we're not going to negotiate on the national debt. We want a clean debt limit increase, which means no fiscal reforms. And they wanted to add $3 trillion to our nation's debt ceiling. The real problem with that is it would only exacerbate our nation's debt and deficit issue. For a long time, Club for Growth has been saying we need to end trillion-dollar deficits. We need to end big government, and we need to end the national debt crisis. This is a good first step toward doing that, but this bill isn't going to be the bill that becomes law. So when you have a real negotiation, House Republicans view this as the floor, not the ceiling. They're not going to move off of this. And I think the fact that it received exactly 217 votes in the House is demonstrative of this idea that conservatives in the House are very, very united. And whatever the Democrats are going to try to add to the package, they have to 
maintain that coalition that existed in the new House Republican majority that actually did pass a bill. Now, how does Chuck Schumer address that issue, right? What I imagine he would do is he would file a substitute amendment on the clean debt limit increase and force a vote in the Senate to really put all those moderate senators on record for opposing a clean debt limit increase. And then they'll have some sort of jockeying back and forth on what that means for a default on our debt obligations. Are we going to lose the ability for good credit with the credit agencies? What exactly is in jeopardy here? That's going to be some of the top-line talking points coming out of Biden and Schumer. But the reality is we do have a House majority. The House is closest to the people in, in direct and proportional representation in America. And so I think that that gives us a strong leverage point in really enacting fiscal reforms that change America's debt problems. So we have this first action by the House of Representatives. Chuck Schumer is going to do something different. What happens next? Will there be a conference committee? Will there be negotiations? What will occur now? Well, we're waiting on the White House to find out exactly what their posture is going to be. I think that they were stunned that House conservatives and Speaker McCarthy were able to get this bill over the finish line in the House and and to put the responsibility on Senate Democrats and the White House. Their comment all along has been, no, we want a clean debt limit increase. We're not going to negotiate. But by passing a bill, they have to reevaluate what that negotiating posture is. And, you know, if we get to a tit-for-tat, and Kevin McCarthy can't move off of this, right? He's got no space. It's not like he can allow House Democrats to pass a new bipartisan bill in the House before the Senate has been able to act and pass anything. So I think the big question here is what Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans do when Chuck Schumer puts forward some sort of a a clean debt limit increase or his own proposal on the probably ad spending, knowing how the Democrats have treated our economy over the last couple of years. President Joe Biden had a big week this past week, Scott. He made official what everybody knew was coming. He's running for re-election. What is sort of the feedback here in the aftermath of that big announcement? When you look at the announcement video, there were a few themes that the Biden campaign is, is keeping strong. And some of them are a little strange. They had a strong featuring of the vice president, Kamala Harris. And so they think that the Biden-Harris team together is the winning team, and that's the winning visual that they want to put forward. They're also showing images from January 6th and MAGA Republicans and Donald Trump and trying to spin the, the movement that is born underneath Trumpism from 2016 against suburban voters that they won in, in 2020. So I think that it'll be interesting to see how Republican candidates for president, whether it's Donald Trump or Nikki Haley or anybody else that's out there, how they attack and address the direct messaging that we're seeing out of the Biden campaign early on here in April of 2023. There's a lot of time, but we know there's the campaigns are are long slog and it's really a marathon, not a sprint. So I'll be watching very, very closely here from our Washington offices to see exactly what the Biden administration continues to message and how their campaign is is targeting what, what I would perceive to be soft Republicans, leaners, and independents. 
Certainly a long way to go, and we will keep track of this week by week with Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. And Scott, tell us a bit about the club. Club for Growth is a membership organization based out of Washington, D.C. We have over 525,000 members from all 50 states. And if anybody wants to check us out, you can sign up for free at clubforgrowth.org and become a member. You can also check us out on Twitter at Club for Growth with the number four. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, thank you again for being here. Okay, thank you. The New York Times recently interviewed Dr. Anthony Fauci, who inadvertently admitted some truths about how the federal government handled the COVID-19 pandemic. We turn now to Eric Baim of Reason Magazine. The New York Times says that Dr. Anthony Fauci is wrestling with the hard lessons of the pandemic and the decisions that will define his legacy. But when it comes time to answer the tough questions about who is at fault for America's botched response to COVID-19, the good doctor is happy to pass the buck. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. This week, I thought we would take a look at one part of what is a lengthy interview published earlier this week by The New York Times with Dr. Anthony Fauci. Take a look at one small, I think, illuminating part of this interview in which Fauci is asked uh, about exactly who is at fault for some of the missteps that were made during the pandemic. And uh, he says, no surprise here, that you shouldn't blame him for the COVID lockdowns and the school closures. Specifically, here's how he puts it. He says, quote, show me a school that I shut down and show me a factory that I shut down. He goes on to say, never. I never did those things. More from Fauci here. He says that he gave a public health recommendation that echoed the CDC's recommendation, and people made a decision based on that. More from Fauci, quote, I'm not an economist. The Centers of Disease Control and Prevention is not an economic organization. The Surgeon General is not an economist. So we looked at it from a purely public health standpoint. It was for other people to make a broader assessment, people whose positions include but aren't exclusively about public health. Those people have to make the decision about the balance between potential negative consequences of something versus the benefits of something. That's the end of the section. And in a certain way, I think Fauci is sort of correct about this. We'll get to what he's wrong about in a minute. Don't worry about that. But in a certain way, he's right about this. He never called for the closure of specific schools. He never pointed at a map and said, this school must be closed, that school must be closed. Nor did he stand at the podium in the White House briefing room and announce which businesses could stay open and which must close. He never published a list as the governor of Pennsylvania, for example, did, of life-sustaining businesses that could stay open while others had to be shut. Those acute decisions, in many cases flawed decisions, were made by other people. They were made by governors, mostly, but also by local elected officials, by school board members. And they were made, in the case of schools specifically, with teachers' unions weighing heavily on the scales of the decision-making process. So, Maybe we can't blame Fauci for that. And moreover, Fauci couldn't have made those decisions either. The emergency powers that uh, were invoked to require everything from closing schools to requiring masks in public and requiring proof of vaccination and so on and so forth, those things did not come from the White House's top coronavirus expert. The emergency powers didn't give him any special authority. Again, it was governors and local officials, along with their dutifully appointed and confirmed public health officials who made those determinations and those decisions. It wasn't Fauci who kept playgrounds in California closed even after bars and restaurants had reopened. 
That was the California Department of Public Health. And it wasn't Fauci arresting socially distanced beachgoers either. It was local police enforcing local ordinances. So Fauci is correct when he says that he didn't shut down factories. He didn't shut down schools. He's also correct, actually, when he diagnoses why those mistakes happened. Let's go back to something he said in that section of the interview I read earlier. Quote, we looked at it from a purely public health standpoint. It was for other people to make broader assessments. That's exactly right. And that's exactly what many elected and appointed officials at all levels of government failed to do during the pandemic. Protecting public health is one important component of an overall pandemic response, of course, but other things matter too. The economy, learning loss from closed schools, the social effects of lockdowns. We know all these things now. But too many public officials ignored those other aspects of the crisis, and we are still dealing with the consequences. But while Fauci is narrowly correct to say these things, he's also woefully understating the role that he played in creating this mess in the first place. Because from the start, Dr. Anthony Fauci was pushing the Trump administration to tell states to lock down. No bars, no restaurants, no nothing, only essential services. When you get to a place like New York or Washington or California, you've got to ratchet it up. That's what he told Science Magazine in an interview in mid-March 2020 as we were having a big national debate over how to respond to the outbreak of COVID-19. Fauci also pushed back against evidence that lockdowns were causing unintended, even though totally predictable, problems. A group of epidemiologists and other public health experts in October of 2020 signed something called the Great Barrington Declaration, which called for a focus on protecting the vulnerable, the elderly primarily, and letting everyone else resume normal life, even in the midst of the pandemic. And this was before vaccines. Soon after it was published, though, Fauci denounced the document as, quote, nonsense and very dangerous. So for Fauci to sit back now and claim that public officials should have spent more time listening to economists and other advisors that weren't him, well, yes, it's true. They absolutely should have done that. But it's also incredibly frustrating. It's like having a friend in the backseat of your car who insists that turning left is the quickest way to get to a restaurant. But a half hour later, after you make the left turn and you're lost and running late, he insists that, well, it was really your fault because you're the one who actually made the left turn. You were driving the car. I mean, he's right, but you're still going to be mad at him for it. They say that success has many fathers, but failure is an orphan. Unfortunately, America's COVID-19 failures have many parents, but they're all absent. It's easy and in some ways right to blame Fauci singularly for these mistakes, but that actually hides a good portion of the policy lessons that we ought to learn from the past few years. Limiting the emergency powers of governors and other elected officials, as 30 states have done in a variety of ways in recent years, is one good idea. Throwing out the bums who made these poor decisions in the first place is another. It would be nice if we could just pile all the blame on Dr. Anthony Fauci and say that he was singularly responsible for the many failures of public policy during the pandemic, because that would mean that his exit from public life, he's now retired, his exit from public life would mean that there was no chance this could happen again. He would be gone, we could blame him, and it would be over. Unfortunately, things are not so simple. The failures were up and down through multiple levels of government with multiple people responsible, and that means that Many changes need to be made in order to make sure that that sort of mistake is not repeated. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Baim. Check out more of our coverage of everything going on in Washington, D.C. and around the rest of the country this week at Reason.com. And catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. 
Russia's use of nuclear weapons as its invasion of Ukraine drags on is a rapidly rising threat. So says Dr. Paul Kengor from the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College on this American Radio Journal commentary. For a while now, listeners to American Radio Journal have heard me express my fear of a desperate Vladimir Putin ultimately resorting to a nuclear option of some sort in Ukraine. Why? Well, for starters, the Russians always get their tails kicked in military conflicts. The fact that they've been beat up in the Ukraine is no surprise to anyone with a knowledge of Russian military history. Maybe the one person most surprised is Vladimir Putin. Maybe. He's certainly not pleased. Putin is a thug, and as he runs out of options to seize Ukraine, the cornered dictator could lash out at his fabricated enemy in an especially vicious way. And that might mean nuclear weapons in some form. That also means that Putin has desperately searched for an excuse for such weapons. He needs to conjure up a pretext to groan about on the global stage, just as he invented the ludicrous notion that he invaded Ukraine, not because he was planning to do so for years, which I've written about in my articles for the American Spectator, which you can check out at spectator.org, including long before Vladimir Zelensky came to power in May 2019, but to spare the neighboring nation's people from, quote, Nazification under the Jewish leader Zelensky. Well, Putin might now have his excuse to escalate to a nuclear level. Russia has learned that Britain is supplying to the Ukraine tank munitions that use depleted uranium shells, specifically armor-piercing rounds that accompany the Challenger 2 tanks that London is providing to Kiev. Britain has used these shells for years as standard conventional weaponry. They're not considered nuclear weapons. To this, the Kremlin has responded, yet, and then some. Putin and his minions insist that Britain's depleted uranium shells would add a, quote, nuclear component, unquote, to the conflict, and hence Russia could respond accordingly. Putin said grimly, quote, it seems that the West really decided to fight with Russia to the last Ukrainian, no longer in words, but in deeds. But in this regard, I would like to note that if all this happens, then Russia will have to respond accordingly. I mean that the collective West is already starting to use weapons with a nuclear component, unquote. <laughs> of course, that's pure agitprop, ratcheted up to the level of classic Soviet desinformatia, that is, disinformation. Former Lieutenant Colonel Putin learned the craft at the KGB in the 1980s. The British Ministry of Defense responded by noting just that, stating, quote, the British Army has used depleted uranium and its armor-piercing shells for decades. Russia knows this, but is deliberately trying to disinform. A British Army tank commander and chemical weapons expert, Colonel Hamish de Breton Gordon, dubbed Putin's assessment, quote, classic disinformation, unquote. Spot on, Colonel. But Putin, however, is peddling this bunkum for a dastardly purpose, and NATO member countries know it, especially those near the front lines. One such country, Hungary, is now urging Britain not to supply these munitions because Putin is clearly using them as an excuse for further escalation, and Hungary is right to express that concern. But then again, Putin will seize a pretext anywhere he can. That's how authoritarians operate. He invaded Ukraine with the excuse that he was sparing the Ukrainian people of Nazis. 
like Hitler, <laughs> the real Nazi, like Stalin, like Saddam Hussein, like any dictator, Putin will carve out excuses to carve up his enemies. Vladimir Putin, I firmly believe, regrettably, is itching to use nukes. This is far from the first time that he has talked about nuclear weapons. And in fact, just a few days later, the news reports out of Moscow were that Putin plans to place nukes in Belarus, his neighboring buddy Lukashenko's country, this June or July. This man, Putin, has been steadily moving toward the nuclear option as he loses on the ground in the Ukraine. When he gets truly desperate, I fear that he could pull the trigger. And maybe this might be the pretext he has been itching for. Let us hope that it isn't. For American Radio Journal, I'm Paul Kengor. Check out my articles at The American Spectator. And thanks for listening. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including KRNG-FM in Wadsworth, Nevada, WLSHAM in Nesquahoning, Pennsylvania, along with KSWHLP in Arkadelphia, Arkansas. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program, please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom.